Epidemiology is a word we hear in the news more and more. And if you haven't heard the word, you've certainly heard about what epidemiologists do. We do research on health, and our goal is to have our work get to you, to your doctor and public health professionals and health policymakers the world over. Chances are you've heard of our work most often because it gets picked up in the news. Just read the health news section of any newspaper or news website, and you'll see our work. There's also a good chance you've been confused by our research or the results that you've read. So headlines like, moderate coffee consumption reduces risk of diabetes. Coffee is especially dangerous for women. Organic foods reduce risk of cancer. Multivitamins prevent heart disease. Red wine is good for your heart. Alcohol causes cancer. Dark chocolate prevents dementia. I wouldn't trust any of these headlines, but there is so much news that comes out in the health world, it can all be pretty confusing. Part of the reason it's so tough to sort through all the information is that we want to be as informed as we can be, and we all want to believe that there is some easy thing we can do to help us live longer and be healthier. We all know someone who died young of a disease that we fear we could get, and we think that if we can avoid their fate, we can add lots of years to our life. The truth is that for the average person, the benefits of many of the changes we can make in our lives are real but modest, and they maybe add in a few years to our lives on average. But we don't typically think in averages, and it's often difficult to grasp the information that epidemiologists produce on risk and probabilities. In addition, there are other reasons why health research is so complicated, even for those of us who do this all the time. Because the truth is, figuring out what causes disease and how to prevent it is tough. And yet, epidemiologists have helped find cures for infectious diseases, shown fluoridation in water leaps to improve oral health, found the harms of smoking and secondhand smoke and identified the benefits of seatbelts at preventing death and automobile accidents and so many more things. So what do we believe and what can we ignore? When should we act and when should we just turn off the TV? These are the big ideas that we want to talk about in this podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from the researchers who are deeply involved in this work. In each episode, we'll look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we're exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health and bring you a look at what we currently know and what we don't know about each of these conditions or potential causes of disease. Today, for our first episode, we'll be doing something a little different to set the stage. The title of episode one is, Why Should I Trust That New Health Study? And to help answer that question, I'm joined by Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo and Brian James from Rush University Medical Center. We're extremely excited to be launching this new podcast, and we're kicking off this inaugural episode with a big picture look at why you should believe anything we epidemiologists do and how you can digest all that health information you hear in a way that makes sense and will set the stage for future episodes that take on a specific disease. So to get us started, we are gonna start talking about what epidemiology is and why it is that epidemiology is so difficult. Haley, can you start us off by just, just giving us your, your short version of what an epidemiologist is? Sure, I can definitely start off with that. So there's a lot of different definitions of what epidemiology is, and I think that's even a confusing starting point to start off with. But uh, You're really, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> broadly speaking, um, epidemiology is the study of the distribution, so the frequency or the patterns, um, as well as the determinants, so the causes or the risk factors of health or disease uh, in specific population groups. So the basic goal of most epidemiology is to um, measure disease frequency, so how frequent a disease is in a population, or to compare measurements of disease frequency in different groups. So it's really important that um, what we do, what we study occurs in a specific population, um, and we're focused on groups of people, which is different than um, some clinical research, which is focused on individual risk or uh, patient uh, treatment decisions. Um, when I'm trying to explain epidemiology to someone, I typically describe it as the study of epidemics, which is not completely true, but it does help divert their attention um, from the connection between epidemiology and epidermis, which is the study of the skin. Right. It's which is, how which is certainly happens. where everybody goes on this Everyone. One. I don't Agreed. understand. It's, it's a tricky one to explain. Um, and thanks for that definition. So, so uh, Brian, can you, can you give us a sense for... 
um, why it is that uh, it is so hard to do epidemiology. I mean, we uh, just look at those headlines that I read. Um, so many of them are conflicting and we hear about information all the time about things that we eat, things that we do that, you know, one day is good for us and one day is bad for us. Why is this so tough? Right. Yeah. So I think one of the main reasons it's so tough is that all of the diseases that were caused by one specific thing, for the most part, we as humans have figured out and we've gotten rid of that specific thing. So most of the things that we're getting sick with these days are chronic diseases. So um, these are diseases that are caused by a domino effect, a multitude of factors over the course of your life. So eliminating any one of those things may have uh, may lower your risk for the disease, but not 100% eliminate the disease. So I think that has a lot to do with, with how difficult epidemiology is. Um, another major problem is that uh, epidemiology is not an experimental science. We can't manipulate every single exposure that people have. Um, you know, people live their lives the way they do, and we have to measure what they're exposed to. We can't say we're going to um, cause you to smoke, for example. Uh, we just have to measure whether they smoke or not. And we can't control whether removing that smoking is going to have the same effect that you can in, say, a, a randomized clinical trial. So I think those are two major um, difficulties to pinning down the causes of disease in epidemiology. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point, which is that that uh, that I think is helpful for the listener to understand, which is that that, that when we can uh, manipulate exposure, so when we do, you know, clinical trials of of new drugs, we can we can you know randomly assign those to people, and that's a really powerful way to go about trying to assess cause and effect, because we create two populations in which we have. You know, we have most of the things that would lead to disease are, are balanced between the groups. And then the only thing that's really changing, or at least we hope, is one group is going to get this drug and one group isn't. And we even use these things called placebos, where we give people a drug, uh, a pill, excuse me, that, that, that is meant to look like and taste like the drug, but, but has no uh, active ingredient in it. And these are all really powerful ways to be able to, to, to figure out cause and effect. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the things that we often um, care about in terms of changing our own lifestyles, they're not things that we can manipulate either because it's just very hard to do. So it's, it's very hard to get people to follow a particular diet in any, in any uh, way that would be consistent or because it would be, as you say, it would be unethical. Things like we can't randomize people to, to smoke. We could randomize them to a smoking cessation program if they were already smokers, but we can't really, really randomize people to smoke. And so once you are in this world of what we call observational research, where we're trying to figure out cause and effect in cases where people have made decisions to do what they do on their own, the, the, you get what we refer to as the um, risk factors party together problem, which is that people who smoke also often are drink, you know, like to drink. And people who uh, like to eat kale often uh, are of a higher socioeconomic status. And so trying to tease out which one of those two is really the cause of your heart attack is, is often really difficult. So I, 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 I share your concern that this is difficult. Haley, anything you would, you would add in terms of the, the challenges that we face in epidemiology of, of, of trying to get at cause and effect? Yeah, I mean, I think what you've both raised are really important points. Um, the things I would add are, for the most part, um, our risk factors change over the life course and what we're exposed to changes over the life course. And that adds another level of measurement complexity because while I may go through a phase where I eat super healthy and I'm at the gym every day or maybe never every day, but four days a week, let's say, and you know, that might be my exposure for a short period of time, you know, that might change in the months and years over the course of my life course. So it makes it really challenging to study something because everything's changing. So that's one point. And the other point is that what is a risk factor or what is a cause in one group may not be a cause or risk factor in another group. So that's an important point, I think, when you are a consumer of the literature to understand uh, this study was done in an older adult population. This study was done in a group of teenagers. And who do these study results apply to is a really important part of um, understanding the results of epidemiologic research. So that's yeah. also what makes it hard. 
right? Before. Yeah, great point. Brian, you were going to add to that? Uh, no, I was just going to say that is a great point. And that is getting us to the uh, topic of interaction that maybe we'll cover a little later. But. Let's, I agree. Let, let, let's, let's come back to that because I think that one is a, is a really important point. Um, so one other thing I would just add, which is I think that um, part of, the, of the, the reason why there is so much conflicting information out there is part of it is that, you know, it's, it's very hard to do epidemiology and, and, and we you know, have to face up to the fact that sometimes we get it wrong. But um, it, when you layer onto that, uh, the, the fact that what is going to get picked up in the news media yeah. uh, are typically things that are, you know, the quick fixes or the, the, the odd finding that's just sort of uh, something we wouldn't expect that is actually going to replicate. Um, you end up with a system whereby, you know, a lot of what ends up in the news isn't actually stuff that's actually going to gonna pan out long term and allow you to, to get reliable information to, to change your life. Um, so, okay, so we've got all of these different uh, potential uh, issues that we're concerned about, but maybe it would be helpful if we took a step back for a second. And Brian, can you, can you just give us a little bit of sense for how epidemiologists actually go about trying to figure out what causes disease? Sure. So um, I think the main tool that epidemiologists use is uh, what we call a cohort study or um, gathering a sample of people to look at and and, um, make inferences about that we think generalize to a population of interest. Um, So that's what we refer to as a cohort. It's a group of people that um, share a, a risk for a disease. Um, now, they may not share it equally, but they all have to, in some way, be at risk for the, the disease. So, for example, if you were doing a, a prostate cancer study, you would probably want to look at men as opposed to women because you want to look at people who can develop the disease. Um, and so uh, what we usually do, as we said, ep- epidemiology is an observational research design. So we follow people, usually over time. Sometimes we only have a snapshot in time and we call that a cross-sectional design, but ideally you follow people over time and you, you measure people's exposures that you're interested in and you measure who develops the disease. Um, so that, that's what we call incident disease. And you figure out which exposures are related to the development of disease. Um, and now there's, and then you, ideally measure a whole host of other factors that could be related to the disease as well as related to the exposure so you can adjust for these um, these things that might spuriously cause an association to to um, to be observed um, and so I think that's the that's the main tool that we use so so I, I would agree with you I mean I think there are a lot of variants on that type of, of design that you talk about and in fact when we when we think about uh, randomized trials where we we randomly assign the the drug say to people in in one group and not in the other that's a, a variant on a cohort study right we're sure. taking a group of people we're following them who don't have the outcome we, we follow them forward in time and the, and the one variation is we randomly manipulate who gets the exposure. But ideally, we do some kind of variant on this, this, this uh, study design where we have longitudinal information and we know that the exposure came before the outcome because if, if we, the one thing we know is if, if smoking is going to cause lung cancer, smoking has to occur before lung cancer. Uh, and so we, we want that, that design to have a, a time element to it. Right. And so, okay, so as you say, we've got this this general approach. And I also wanted to follow up on one other point you made, which is that you said uh, we don't just collect information on the the exposure of interest if we're talking about smoking and lung cancer. We don't just collect information on smoking. We also collect information on the other things that we worry about that might be imbalanced between smokers and non-smokers. So as I said, smokers tend to drink more. So in any really good epidemiologic study, you're going to collect information on those other factors. And we have statistical ways that we can use to control for the fact that there would be these imbalances. Now, that doesn't mean we always do a great job of it, and it doesn't mean we've always measured those things well, but in any good epidemiologic study, we're not just simply looking at the exposure and the outcome, we think about all these other things. Uh, So Haley, can you you, uh, kind of talk us through, so we have this, this design, 
can you talk us through some of the, the main ways that, that studies go wrong? So we, we've sort of talked in general terms, but there are some sets of, of biases that we think about when we're trying to figure out whether or not an epidemiologic study is any good. Can you, can you talk us through those? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are in general three main categories of bias or um, in epidemiologic studies. And the first is a type of bias called selection bias. So that occurs when the estimate of effect, so the relationship between your exposure and your outcome that you get in your study um, is not accurate because of the way that you selected people to be in your study. So we sometimes say that the estimate from the study population does not accurately apply to the target population or the source population that gave rise to the study sample. So that's the first type of bias. The second type of bias is called information bias, and it's also a systematic bias um, that's caused by incorrect measurement or incorrect classification of important study variables like your exposure or your outcome. So when I think about information bias or misclassification, I like to think of this analogy of, of putting people into the correct bin. And so when you um, have an individual and you want to measure their exposure, you put them in a bin that is labeled either exposed or unexposed. And misclassification is when you put them into the wrong bin. So that's a very simple way of, of understanding how you could see if you put someone in the wrong bin and you misclassify them, that would affect the relationship that you calculate between their exposure and their outcome. The third category or type of bias that epidemiologists often talk about is called confounding. And Brian and Matt touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, but this is basically a bias that occurs uh, due to a mixing of an effect. So the effect of the exposure that we're interested in is mixed with the effect of a third variable or a set of different variables. And because those effects are mixed together, it makes it difficult or impossible in some cases to identify what is the effect of the exposure on the outcome because it's mixed up with a whole bunch of these other um, variables. So there's this example that's often used in epidemiology classes um, where ice cream and drowning deaths are, are very frequently um, correlated. And on its face, it might appear that, you know, ice cream is dangerous or ice cream causes people to drown. But really, when you sit and think about this, there's nothing about ice cream that would cause someone to drown. Um, in all likelihood, it's confounded by seasonality or by temperature. So on hot summer days, people are more likely to be outside um, enjoying an ice cream from the ice cream truck. They're also more likely to be outside, maybe by the beach, by the lake, and, and cooling off. So this is causing a spurious or a false relationship between ice cream eating and drowning that isn't a causal effect. So like we mentioned earlier, if you were to do an analysis and you measured how much ice cream someone ate, the number of drownings that occurred, and also the daily temperature, you could control for or adjust for the temperature on a given day or, or in a given season um, to control for the effect or remove the mixing between temperature and ice cream that was causing it appear to be dangerous for drowning. So those are the three things I think I would talk, mention. Yeah, so those are the those are the sort of the three most common ways that we get things wrong in epidemiologic research, in terms of what we what you're referring to there is is bias. These are the 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 ways we get it wrong because of something that either we did or just the ways in which these these factors cluster together. As you said, uh, the fact that. Uh, drowning and and uh, ice cream consumption tend to cluster together even though there's 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 no direct causal link there is uh, this third factor and this is presumably uh, most people have heard the saying correlation is is not causation this is where that comes from um, I think the saying probably gets a little overstated in that correlation does not mean causation but if you have causation there should be correlation and so our job is to kind of tease those out there is a, another thing that I, I would mention which is another way that we get it wrong is what we refer to as random error of course and random error is the case where we we get it wrong not because of anything that we did it's just you know by chance this study happened to find something that wasn't actually true in the same way that you could flip a fair coin, you know, 10 times, and it might come up heads 10 times. You know, it's strange, but it's, you know, it does happen sometimes. Um, 
And so, as you say, I mean, these are the reasons why it's so challenging to, to tease out cause and effect. And these are the reasons why we really like these randomized trials when, we, when they can be done, because uh, in the randomized trial, we can, we can limit a lot of these biases, in particular selection bias, because we, we find the entire population and we hold on to them in the study. Uh, and uh, the confounding problem, these, these idea that risk factors cluster together because we don't allow them to. We, we assign the exposure to people. We say you get the drug and you don't, regardless of whether you, know, you had other risk factors for the outcome. Um, they still have problems with, with potentially with, with measurement error or loss to follow-up, people dropping out of the study, and we just can't identify their outcomes. But generally, it's a, a stronger design. So Brian, in, in your work, um, are there specific examples of some of these biases that you tend to think about when you're trying to identify causation in your work? Uh, oh, definitely. So um, I guess we didn't mention this, but my work focuses on Alzheimer's disease and dementia in older adults. Um, and there are a number of potential biases. So, for example, um, one of the major uh, protective factors that we have found for dementia is higher education. So people who have higher levels of education tend to develop dementia at a lower rate. So they have lower risk for dementia. Now, as you can imagine, being highly educated is correlated with a number of factors that could also affect your health. Um, higher socioeconomic status, uh, perhaps uh, better nutrition, um, you know, you could go on and on uh, about the ways that people who have higher levels of education live their lives that are different from people with lower levels of education. So you have to be very careful in making these claims um, to try to adjust away for some of these confounders, as we call them. Um, I also wanted to mention that um, aside for, so we talked about, you know, developing a cohort study, following people over time, and that's how you develop evidence. Um, but I also wanted to say that one of the tools that we use as epidemiologists to give us a lot of um, information about causality is replication. So if you find the same finding in a number, a different, a large number of cohorts, um, then you have a lot more evidence that that's probably a real causal factor. So education and dementia is a great example there because almost every single study of older people that has looked at this have found that people with higher levels of education have lower risk for dementia. So that, that gives you something to go on that this is probably a real association. Again, you still have to deal with confounding, you know, even across all of those studies that have found that it may be the same problem that is leading to the spurious association. So, um, yeah, I, I think you make a really interesting point, which is that we do, we, we, when, when, uh, we think when, when those of us who are doing this for a living, think about how we try and determine when we believe we're looking at cause and effect. And when we're just looking at, uh, you know, one of these, these, these sources of bias that we've been talking about, one of the big things that we think about is, um, it, are we just seeing this once or are we seeing it over and over and over? Um, now that doesn't, seeing it over and over doesn't necessarily make it right. We can, and there's some, some pretty famous examples out there of cases where we have actually replicated the same bias over and over and over in what we refer to as the observational research, ones where we don't intervene. And then that evidence then gets tested with a, a randomized trial. We found out, lo and behold, we were actually doing the same thing wrong over and over. So, um, but still, it's, I, I would agree with you that it's, it's much stronger evidence when we, when we can see the same thing happening over and over. Um, I want to go back to one thing, Haley, that you said, which is that you talked about um, bias in estimates of effect, and I don't think we, we really defined what an estimate of effect is or a measure of association is. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight on, on how we actually, you know, when we actually are comparing two populations, how we, you know, think about that? Sure. So um, ultimately, you know, like we talked about at the very beginning, we look to see whether there is a relationship between an exposure that we're interested in and an outcome. And the way that we assess whether there is a relationship is we calculate quantitatively um, a measure of association or a measure of effect uh, in order to 
compare between groups. So what we generally do is we um, estimate risk or rate of a disease in some in one of the groups. So let's say the exposed group. And then we do the same. We calculate the risk or rate of disease in the unexposed group. And we compare the risk or the rate that we got from the exposed group and the risk or the rate uh, in the unexposed group and see if they are different. And that helps us um, determine or, or ascertain whether the exposure of interest um, is having an effect on the outcome that we're interested in. So that's why it's called a measure of effect. Yeah. And so in, in my research, I, I'm doing HIV research, we might be interested in whether uh, one population has a higher rate of HIV than the other. So we would uh, break those two groups of people up by their, their population of interest. So, you know, that, that might be uh, people in the United States compared to people living in, in sub-Saharan Africa. We would then take people without the disease, follow them forward in time, count the number that get the disease in each group. We could summarize that as a proportion, maybe 5% in, in, in the sub-Saharan African population get it and 3% in the U.S. population gets it. And then we divide those two numbers, uh, 5%, the 3%, uh, 5% divided by 3% is, oh boy, now I'm going to have to do... <laughs> Public math. Some, Good luck with that. that. Uh, it's higher, obviously, in the in the sub-Saharan African population, and so that's our our measure of association. Mm-hmm. Uh, that raises another good point: is that you don't. That I can't always, do math. Well, yes. Aside from that, <laughs> we have people that, for that. No. That's called biostatisticians. It's yes, true. and we appreciate but them. Sorry. You don't always have to divide the um, the risks in the two groups. You can subtract them, which is a yeah. much easier way of not having to do math on a podcast because even I can do five minus three, which is two. Well right? done. <laughs> I had to, <laughs> to make sure on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. that is um, an important distinction between what we would call a relative effect, which is when you're dividing between the two groups and an absolute effect, which is when you're subtracting between the two groups. And this is something you hear on the news a lot, right? You'll often hear on the news that, uh, you know, eating, eating fish will uh, reduce your risk for dementia by 10% or 15%. And the question you always want to ask is, is that a, is that a relative 15% or is that an absolute 15%? Because, you know, the, if I'm, I'm thinking about this in relative terms, it depends on how much dementia there is in the population to begin with. Right. If I'm thinking about it in absolute terms, that's a, a 15% reduction over a lifetime is, is a big reduction. So we want to think very carefully about those two. I think that's a really good point if I could um, jump in about that, because oftentimes we're only talking about that relative risk when reporting things uh, in the media. And oftentimes I, you know, we don't realize that the risk for the comparison group is incredibly small. So you could sell it. Could, you could make something sound incredibly impressive by saying there's a 25% reduction in risk, but if people aren't aware or made aware, because it's important that both the journalist and the scientist make it aware, uh, make people aware that that comparison groups risk is very minuscule. Um, then it may not actually affect the population's health at that great of a rate. And then vice versa, if we're talking about something like dementia, where a lot of people are at risk for it, um, you know, a 5% reduction in risk could lead to thousands of people, thousands of fewer people getting dementia over the course of a year. So those relative and, and absolute differences are really important to, to report when we're talking about epidemiologic findings. Yeah, you, you make a really interesting point, which is there's often a difference between um, population level changes and individual level changes. Mm-hmm. So let's say we had a, a, a new drug that could um, bring down uh, people's uh, blood pressure by you know, a, a small number. I don't, I don't know blood pressure very well, but let's say we could bring it down by uh, 10 units. Is that yeah. plausible? <laughs> sure, yeah. let's go. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, 10, that's 10, definitely plausible. Yeah. Okay. So you might think, well, 10, 10 is not actually all that much. Um, is it really worth it for me to go on this drug, which might have side effects? Um, whereas on a population level, if we could bring the entire population 
uh, uh, blood pressure down by 10 units, that the, the number of uh, heart attacks and strokes that that might translate into could be huge. So it's, it's often we have to think very carefully about what are, we, what are we trying to assess here? We're trying to assess whether this would be a good population level intervention for trying to uh, make an impact on some outcome, or is it me who's trying to make the decision as to whether or not I should take this new drug? So, okay, so I think, I hope that that gives the audience a, a little bit of an insight into, you know, where all this, this health information comes from and gets picked up and reported in the news. So let's shift a little bit here and start to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how consumers, people who are listening to the, the, the health news should think about the information and, and the things that they should processes they should go through in, in trying to assess uh, whether or not they think the results of a particular study are, are, are a good study or an important study or are something that they want to uh, incorporate as a change into their lives. Now, Haley, do you want to start us off on, tell us the kinds of things that you think about when you, you know, so I, one of the things I like to always point out is that just because I'm a, an epidemiologist, I'm an HIV researcher. And so you know, that doesn't, I don't actually know everything there is to know about diabetes or heart attacks or any of these things. So when I hear these things on the news, I'm approaching it, you know, very similar to the average consumer with the one difference that I have some more insight into how these studies are conducted, but I still have to go through the process of trying to make a decision. Is this good for me or is this bad for me? Can you talk a little bit about your, your process for, for evaluating health information in the cases where it's not your specific area of expertise? Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, it's it's difficult for epidemiologists as well to discern sometimes, you know, what is real and what is not. I think the first thing I look for is I, I'm always cautious when I hear about something that is a quick fix or something that is a cure. So, you know, you can't see me right now, but I'm drinking my coffee, um, you know, and, and I love coffee. If I had a dollar, a nickel, whatever it is, for every time I saw in the literature that coffee cures this or coffee prevents this or coffee causes you to have some terrible outcome, none of it's going to make me quit coffee, firstly. And secondly, you know, I'm always cautious because the constant flow of information about coffee is um, really difficult to understand which way is up. So whenever I see um, a new study claiming to have, uh, you know, about the health benefits or health risks of coffee, I automatically want to go to the actual journal, to go to the actual source of this information and try to understand some of the key things that we've talked about. So what was the study design? What are, um, did they measure some variables or do they control for variables that I would think are important confounders of this relationship? Is there potential selection bias? So that's where I think the epidemiology training really is helpful for me, even though I don't research coffee in any way, you know, those are the things that I look for, the things that we've talked about, the study design and the biases. And that helps me determine, um, you know, whether I'm reading something that I think is a causal relationship um, or if I think that it's, you know, a one-off kind of random, it could be, it could be a random finding, you know, the, they really did the study and they still found that effect, or there's some kind of systematic bias that's going on, um, and that's the reason they found their effect. So th that's kind of the way I approach non, uh, sorry, things not, that are not in my area of expertise. Hmm. So you sounds like you go in and, and try and identify the studies that you're interested in and see how good they are. Yeah. Brian, how about you? What are, what are your uh, main uh, tools that you use to try and suss out whether or not a study is a good one? Yeah, I, I just wanted to riff on what you were saying about the word cure. Obviously, uh, when the word cure is in the headline, yes. be very skeptical. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and in fact, I get uh, you know, I get a number of emails and texts from people who see headlines about Alzheimer's all the time saying that, you know, they cured Alzheimer's disease. And, um, you know, one of the main things I say without even looking at the article is, is it in mice or in humans? <laughs> because <laughs> cured Alzheimer's disease in mice about a hundred times over, still yet to do it in humans. So, uh, you know, so that's maybe one thing is, you know, animal research is very important for understanding the mechanisms at work. But, um, you know, first thing is, uh, is this research actually in a disease? <laughs> That's actually... That's really important. It's a very, very good important. point, Brian. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned is, is so sample size. 
So we talked about mm -hmm. random error and about how flipping a coin, you know, 10 times could give you a weird um, result, 10 heads or 10 tails. But if you flip the coin a thousand times, you're probably going to get a lot closer to that 50% heads, 50% tails. So that is why population, uh, sorry, sample size um, is a very important determinant of whether we think random error is going to be affecting the results. So one thing I look for is how big was this study? You know, like if they say it's in the Framingham study and it had thousands of people, I'm like, oh, okay, that, that gives me a little bit more belief that this is a real finding. Um, and then, you know, I just mentioned the Framingham study, but you know, there's also the cachet of, of um, cohort studies and research teams that have done a, have a strong track record of, of work that we tend to believe in. So, that, you know, that, that may go beyond what the general public may know, but there are certain studies like the Framingham study that have a lot of cachet. Um, and then on top of that, I look at, uh, like you said, the, um, how did they actually do the study? Now, people that aren't trained in epidemiology may not understand study design the way trained epidemiologists do. But one thing you can look for is whether it was what we call longitudinal. So as we talked about in the beginning, if we follow people over time and we actually see if, if um, disease outcomes develop rather than just look at one period in time, then we have a lot more evidence that there's some temporality going on, that you know the exposure came before the outcome, that we're actually witnessing people who didn't have the outcome develop the outcome over time as opposed to people who had the outcome when we started observing them and they're somehow different from people that, that develop the outcome as we're, as we're watching them. Um, so there's a number of, of um, study design tricks that I think we could teach you, even if you're not a trained epidemiologist, to look at. I, I call yeah. them tricks, but they're not tricks. That was a, that was a bad word. Rules, <laughs> rules, rules of thumb, rules. maybe. Yeah. Rules. There you go. I like that. Yeah, um, yeah I think you, 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 you touched on an important point with, that we didn't talk about before, as you say, which is sample size. How big is, is the study? I think it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, if, 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 if I see a study was, was a small study, um, then I'm, I'm probably going to be skeptical of the results. It doesn't mean that I believe that, that, that the finding isn't necessarily true. It's just that I'd, I'd want more information and, and more data before I would actually believe it. And so knowing about the sample size obviously is going to help you. But when you say that, I mean, so for the audience, what, what is, talk to me about what is a, a small study and what's a big study. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think it depends on the outcome and it depends on the exposure, right? But as a general rule of thumb, if you're talking about 10 or 20 people, <laughs> it's not a very big study. And there's a very large chance that random error could take effect. Um, when you're getting into the hundreds, you're getting a little bit more secure in uh, you know, your findings not be due to random error. Uh, but then you know, we also have the threat of what we call overpowered studies. So you know, we have studies that have hundreds of thousands of people and when you have a very large study, a very small relative risk will be significant. You know, it tends to be significant, um, but it may not be clinically significant. So we talked about the difference between relative and absolute or uh, absolute risk. And so you have to be careful of that as well. So you really want to balance not just did they actually find a statistically significant association, but how big is that association, even in a really large study, maybe even more so in a large study? Yeah, and I, you know, we, we think about sample size um, as being important. Uh, and so you'll often, I, at least I, when I turn on the news, often hear the biggest study to date or, you know, this huge new study. Uh, and part of the reason we can have these huge studies nowadays is because a lot of the, the research, the observational research done often gets done using data sets that get collected for reasons that had nothing to do with trying to assess the, the, the cause and effect relationship we're interested in. So it isn't that anybody set out to collect this information to figure out does uh, smoking cause diabetes. It's that we had this huge uh, health insurance database that, that, that people were collecting information because they needed it for billing purposes, but all the information is there and we can try and use it. And suddenly we have a database of millions and millions of people. Um, we want to exploit that. But one of the problems that we have is with big studies, the bigger the study is, as you say, the, the random error goes away or it can eventually go away if it gets big enough. 
in the way that you said, uh, if you flip a coin 10 times and it comes up head 10 times, that's not unusual. But if you flip a coin a million times and it comes up heads a million times, something is wrong. Uh, in that same way, the, the random error goes away as the study gets really big, but the systematic error, so all the things that Haley told us about in the beginning, so the, the confounding problems, the, the problems with the way we select people into our studies, and the, the inability to measure things really well, those don't go away. And so the biases that, that get it into our studies, if the study is really big, can make the, the large study can make it seem like our study is more definitive when in fact it isn't. Um, okay, so um, so that's sort of, I think, a little bit of the behind the scenes of how you'd go about it in the cases where, you know, you're an epidemiologist and you're looking into something that is not within your field of interest. Uh, and so you have to do a bit of digging. But what about for the listener? What are the things that the listener can be thinking about when they're hearing these headlines, uh, you know, in order to, to try and figure out whether or not they should they should bite at this particular headline or not? Brian, what's your... Yeah, so we talked about this before, but I think um, the number of other studies that have seen the same thing is important. So if this is a replication uh, of results that have, or, or some aspect of it ha is similar to what has been found in the past in a number of different studies, that gives me a lot more faith that what we're seeing is real. Um, you know, a lot of times the novel new findings that have never been shown before are the ones that get the press but they're also the ones that you should be most skeptical about, right? Because we yeah. need to go and see if we can actually see this in another study that may not have the same biases, the same selection biases as Haley mentioned, uh, as this one particular study. So that. Yeah, I think that, I think that Brian raises a really good point there, which is, you know, we as epidemiologists, we as researchers, I think, I certainly do, for the most part, always try to put out the best research and the highest quality research that I can do with the resources that I have available. Once I get through the peer review process, once you know it gets into the published literature, I have really limited control over what gets reported from the article that I published. And, you know, I think most researchers have examples and have stories of times where you see what's reported about your work and you think to yourself, either that wasn't at all what my conclusion was, or that was such a minor part of what I was concluding. Why is that the headline? So I think that as a consumer, you know, you, you really, you see headlines because newspapers are in the business of selling the news. They want people to open up the newspaper and think, oh, I want to read this article. Look how interesting this finding is, you know. Coffee is causing someone to have something terrible today. But really, you know, that's not necessarily what the research found. And so um, I, I think that any researcher could share this kind of frustration. And my message, I guess, would be um, use caution when interpreting the results of uh, medical and health science that you're getting from the news media. Yes. And on top of that, read beyond the headline. Because yes, yes. First of all, there's a filter between the scientists and the journalists. And I think most science journalists at major newspapers are doing a really good job these days to try to incorporate um, the words of the scientists. Yes, that's true. I want to make that point very clear. And they're trying as best as they can. But then you often have an editor or another person who comes up with the headline that's not even the journalist who wrote the paper. And sometimes it's a little bit more sensationalized than the actual um, piece in the newspaper is. So I would definitely read beyond the headlines, read, you know, read from beginning to end. Sometimes the important conclusions are at the end of the, of the piece. Um, and if you can, as Haley said, go to the original source. What drives me crazy is that oftentimes newspapers don't have a link to the original source paper. I, I just wish we could do away with that altogether and always have that link. But, um, you know, sometimes you can. Now, going to the paper may be a little intimidating if you're not an epidemiologist, if you're not a scientist, but almost all scientific papers have what we call an abstract that will break down um, in pretty basic wording what the what that paper is showing. So that might be helpful um, to go to find the original source, read the abstract, and um, see if it matches up with what you're reading in the newspaper article. 
Yeah, I, I think that trying to get back to the source uh, is is challenging, both because, uh, you know, the, the language may be quite technical in the original paper, but also because uh, those those papers actually often are behind paywalls that people would often have to pay quite a bit of money to, to access those uh, articles themselves. We, 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 and working universities can often access them because our universities subscribe to those journals, but it's, it's often different, difficult for someone from the, from the, the general public to, to access those without uh, spending significant amounts of money, which I think is a, a future episode in and of itself, because yes. I think there's a big problem there given who's actually usually paying for these funding, for these studies, which is usually uh, you through your tax dollars, but we can come back to that another time. So, uh, another thing I, I suppose I want to say is that that when you think about how to interpret the information that you're getting from the from the from the news is to um, think you know epidemiologists think about priors what we refer to as priors which is um, what did I think about this relationship before I ever saw the data or in this case heard the headline you know did I did I have any reason to believe that coffee was going to cause cancer. Um, and, and, you know, if you're skeptical of that relationship to begin with, then if there's a study that finds that there is a relationship, that's interesting. You know, that's new information that I didn't have before, but I still have to combine that with the fact that I already have this, this skepticism that there should be a relationship to begin with. And, you know, I, I have to think very carefully about how to combine those two sources of information. Now, if there are, you know, 10 studies that suddenly come out that all find this relationship between, you know, coffee and cancer, that, that's, that's going to change my mind. But one study, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, how does it fit into the bigger picture? And so I would be skeptical of, of any time you see a, a headline or a study, excuse me, uh, being reported in the news in which they don't talk about what has been found previously. You know, is this the first study that's ever been done? And if not, what did the other studies find? Because, you know, we really want to think about not just one study in isolation, but the, the bigger picture and how do I factor that into to what I already already think. Uh, what are some other What are some other tips, Brian? Well, I was just going to jump off on that yeah. and say if if you're reading about a study that found something different than what previous studies showed, then what did it do differently? You know, how did it? How what angle did it take that gave you new information? So should we believe this study rather than the previous studies because it was a better designed study? You know, these are the type of things we need to think about. Not all studies are created equal. So you may have three studies where one finds something different than the other two, but it has thousands of people. It was well-designed. The other two were, were uh, cross-sectional case control studies with 30 people. Um, you know, those are not equivalent pieces of evidence. I, I agree. And I think that, that when you see a study that contradicts everything we already knew, um, you should be you should be skeptical. I mean, if this is, you know, there have been 20 studies that don't find that coffee causes uh, cancer, and then you find one that does, mm, you got to wonder why. Now, that's tricky, I have to say, because often if a study finds that, that coffee doesn't cause cancer, that never gets reported. And the reason is that's, that's you know, that's not a splashy headline uh, that journals necessarily want to want to uh, publish. And that's not the kind of headline that the media wants to cover, right? Nobody uh, generally wants to, to advertise things that are, are safe, even though that's actually really useful information. Um, if to find, you know, to find that coffee actually has no harm or benefit for some particular outcome is useful information for people. But that doesn't generally get reported. Haley, I, I got since you had some, some uh, additional stuff you wanted to add there. Yeah, so um, related to something we talked about earlier um, about interaction and um, who exactly were the participants, who were the people that were in the study um, that was being conducted? And, um, you know, so there's a couple of things related to this. Um, the first is that if I want to understand whether an exposure of interest relates to me in my current state, you know, you need to understand who were the people that were studied in this particular study. So that's another thing to look for when you are, um, when you're, you know, seeing the results of a study in the news is, you know, was this done in older adults? Was it done in young people? And um, how does that apply to the current stage that I'm at? And when you say, so you said interaction there. So what do you, what do you mean by interaction? So, I mean, it's a, 
it's a complicated topic, I guess, um, but there's a couple different aspects. So um, interaction can be used in the way that there are two exposures that you're interested in looking at, and do they interact with each other to produce an effect on the outcome? So something I've looked at in my research is obesity and smoking, and how these two factors, if you are an obese a person who is obese uh, and a smoker, how that changes your mortality risk compared to someone who is not obese and a non-smoker. So we're looking at sort of the joint effect of these two people. And I think when we talked about interaction a little bit earlier, we were talking about, um, I think I was using an aging type of example and or a gender type of example. So um, does the exposure differ in men and women? Um, does the exposure of interest differ between older or younger people? So these are questions that we're asking, not just about the exposure in isolation, but the exposure and how it relates to another specific variable that we're interested in. So that's usually how we talk about interaction. Yeah, and I think I think one of the ways that this plays out is when we when we start to think about uh, who the study results are really applicable to. So really, mm-hmm. what we talk about as uh, generalizability, how who do these findings relate to, and and the that interaction that you're talking about is, say for example, uh, you know you're talking about a, a dietary pattern. So we're interested in whether uh, consuming, you know, uh, more carbohydrates is is good for you. Well we have to be really careful in how we define that because eating, you know, increasing my carbohydrate intake at age 50, not that I'm 50, but <laughs> increasing my carbohydrate uh, consumption at age 50 might be very different from increasing my carbohydrate consumption at age 20 uh, because the, 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 you know, the body is very different in those two different ages, has been exposed to many different things over that time period. And so, you know, who did they do this study in? And are the effects different in those who are, did they find that the effects were different in those who were older versus younger? Were they different in men versus women? Could be any different thing that that designates us as a particular population that we want to know about these uh, effects in. Brian, uh, so I, I wanted to I wanted to um, go back to something that we we sort of touched on in the beginning. Um, we 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 talked about in the beginning that there are some real big success stories that we've had in epidemiology. One of the biggest one is smoking and, and lung cancer, which was was discovered in the what the nineteen fifties or so, fifties and sixties. And one of the reasons why that was was our first real big success story, uh, at least in terms of chronic disease, is because the effects were were really large. Smokers had such a massively increased risk of developing lung cancer compared to non-smokers that it's very easy to observe that. Um, you know, you just start to notice a pattern. We don't really exist in that world anymore. Um, a lot of the 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 big effects are things that we've already studied. So. Um, it, it becomes harder and harder to then uh, assess small effects. So if we're talking about changes in dietary patterns, you know, that's not going to, that, that may have a, a, a benefit in terms of my mortality or my cardiovascular risk, but we don't expect massive effects. And can you talk a little bit about how that, that plays out in terms of uh, how you would digest the, the information you're getting in the news? Yeah, it's a really good point. All the low-hanging fruit is pretty much harvested at this point. Um, And we are talking about disease processes that really have multitude of causes. Um, You know, we're talking about heart disease is a perfect example. I mean, that is one of the number one killers in the country. I believe it is the number one killer. Um, And there's not one thing that causes heart disease. There are multiple things that cause heart diseases and they work together. They, they interact with each other like Haley was talking about. Um, so removing any one of those isn't going to completely solve the problem of heart disease. However, it will lower risk and at, because so many people are at risk, that could have a major shift of the disease, disease curve in the population. Um, so, uh, you know, not only do multiple, oh, I wanted to make this point too. So not only are diseases these days caused by multiple exposures, but also one exposure could lead to many different diseases, right? So one of the problems we have in digesting 
the news about health is that you might see something about how coffee, coffee's bad for you now, as we keep saying, but well, well, hold on a second, you know, coffee might be related to, let's say, you know, um, some aspect of health, I don't know, heart disease, let's say, I'm not saying it is, but that's just an example, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it increases your risk for say cancer. So a lot of times people want to just boil everything down to a message. Don't do this. You know, don't drink coffee. Don't do this. Whereas there's very few exposures where we can say not doing that is going to be, you know, good for all diseases. Now there are certain exposures like exercise, for example, that seem to have this just multitude of effects on a whole bunch of different disease outcomes. So I think that's where epidemiology as a field is moving is towards um, tackling these exposures that have multi multiple effects on diseases. Um, I think I kind of got off my train. My train derailed there, so. That's all right. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I think the, the, the way to bring that back, though, is to say that, um, you know, there, there is this balance of, of effects that, that we tend to, in the news, want to isolate the effects of an exposure, say it's coffee or say it's diet or whatever it is, on one particular outcome. But, you know, just as you say, just because smoking might... Uh, sorry, uh, coffee might increase your risk for a certain type of cancer, but decrease your risk for, you know, a cardiovascular event or, or vice versa. Uh, none of those are, are true pieces of information. I'm just saying you have to think about the, the, the benefits and the harms together before we want to make any decisions. Right. The, the other thing I would say is, as we said, we're, we're in the, this era of what we refer to as the era of small effects. And so, you know, you might hear on the news that, uh, you know, coffee reduces your risk for some outcome by 20%. Well, you know, we talked about it earlier, well, what's the baseline rate? Is that, a, is that a rare outcome to begin with? And so a 20% reduction is actually, in absolute terms, is a very, very small change, such that I really wouldn't want to change my behavior. Um, but I think the other side of that is that if we're in the era of small effects for many things, um, the changes that we might choose to make in our lives um, aren't going to have massive effects. I think we like to think when we hear these news headlines that, oh, if I just start drinking coffee, then I'm going to live till I'm 100. And that's really not what these studies are saying. We're often talking about, you know, the, the people live on average a few years longer uh, if, they are, if they're doing these particular things, or maybe not even that, maybe a few months. Um, and so the, I think we, we need to be, you know, cautious about interpreting the size of these effects before we, we think about what we might want to do about them. Right. And if I could add also, we have to remember that these are effects on average over a group of people. So it may or may not have an effect on you, <laughs> it, yeah. but over a large group of people, it may have an effect. And, and this comes up a lot in my research when, you know, I'm giving talks to people in the community about what they can do to reduce their dementia. Um, risk of dementia. And a lot of times people say, well, wait a second, my, you know, grandfather did all that stuff you're talking about, but he still got dementia. And then often I say, well, when did he get dementia? When he was 98 years old. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, he may have gotten dementia when he was 70 years old, had he not done all of those wonderful things he did. Right. So, um, that's something to keep in mind as well. I think also something about that, um, you know, this era of small effects, especially when it comes to nutritional or dietary epidemiology, a whole other topic for a whole other long jam-packed podcast is, you know, a lot of the things you'll read about, you know, omega-3s and supplements, go for it. You know, if you want to eat fish, you know, 12 times a week, more power to you. But the if mercury, you wanna... the mercury. <laughs> what, what, what about chocolate though? Can I eat chocolate 12 times a week? You know, I don't know if chocolate has omega-3, so maybe not, but um, <laughs> but maybe we could make a billion-dollar company making omega-3 fortified chocolate. That sounds like a delicious mm. idea. The other thing, idea. you know, is about supplements. So you can take a whole whack of nutritional supplements out there. In all likelihood, they're probably not going to harm you. In all likelihood, they're probably not going to help you all that much either. You're going to have some very expensive urine. But, you know, if it yep. makes you feel better... <laughs> 
go for it because in all likelihood, the, uh, the effect that a supplement, certainly an individual supplement has on an outcome is going to be relatively small. So there is some element of individual choice and individual discretion um, in both interpreting things, um, especially when it comes down to your priors and also in choosing to make any particular health choice. And balancing of risks. That was a really good point you brought up. So in taking this information to heart and actually changing my behavior, am I putting myself at risk for other things? So you have to keep that in mind. Um, You know, being socially active to prevent dementia, you know, is an example where we don't 100% know it's causal, but what's the harm? You know, go out there, be socially active. It's going to be good for you in some ways. Yeah. And so I, the other thing I would say about the being in the era of, of small effects, first of all, I should clarify, I, that doesn't, I don't mean to imply that, that we won't ever find things that, that could have big impacts on our lives. I'm just saying that on average, the things that you tend to hear about in the news when they relate to um, lifestyle factors like diet and uh, uh, supplements and, and exercise and things, well, maybe not exercise, but in things like that, uh, you know, generally aren't going to have large effects. They're going to have moderate size effects. And so making those changes you know, isn't, isn't going to necessarily change your life. But it also uh, means that if you are um, thinking about the ways that studies can go wrong, it's much easier to get a, a small effect wrong than a, a big effect wrong because, you know, a little bit of bias in a study that's trying to assess a small effect, um, you know, can, can make it appear that there is a small effect when there isn't and vice versa. But the flip side of that, I think, is, you know, it's reasonable to be, you know, somewhat skeptical going, you know, before you hear the results of a study when we're talking about small effects, because it, it's probably going to be less harmful and then wait for some good information to come along to, to change your mind. So as we start to wrap this up, I, I guess I want to end by thinking on the on the positive. So what are the things that, that you both look for um, that helps you decide, you know, this is, this is probably pretty good information. Brian, what, what, what do you, what are your go-to sources? Uh, actual sources like uh, sources or, or, or ways of, uh, you know, things that you hear about, uh, that make you more confident in a particular result. Um, well, there's the source, uh, the actual media source, you know, um, not all media sources are equal. If you, Here's something on InfoWars. I'm not sure it's going to be as fact-based as something from, say, Washington Post. But uh, anyways, um, you know, so there's that. And then also the, the uh, source of the actual research, as we talked about before, both the journal that it comes from, that's harder to, that's harder to assess as a person who's not in the field. Um, you know, the, the institutions, the researchers come from. So all, the, all of these things kind of give people some idea of standing in terms of, you know, whether this is believable, but all of those are above and beyond um, some of the more basic things you can do that we've, that we've outlined here, which is just actually read how the study was, was done, how it was conducted, how large it was, um, you know, what did they take into account? When you hear quotes from the authors, um, are they, do they seem that they're exaggerating things? I mean, I think that that is, you know, I think a good scientist is almost always going to hedge their bets whenever they present any of their findings. They're going to say, we found this, but we need to do more research because of this. I think that, in my mind, actually gives more believability to a study than someone who says, hey, we just cured Alzheimer's disease, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Haley, how about, how about you? What are you? What are the things that uh, give you more confidence in a particular headline or, or a particular finding? Um, I mean, I think again, ending on a positive note is that um, you know most scientists out there are doing really great work in epidemiology, and they're you know trying very hard to get the study results right. So, you know. Although I'm always I'm I'm skeptical, I'm also optimistic about you know the the research that is getting published. Um, you know, in general, I think for the most part is good quality. Um, you know, so I, I try to be optimistic, glass half full kind of in that way. Um, the one thing that I think uh, we haven't talked about and is again something to look for is 
conflicts of interest? And um, is the study funded by um, somebody who might have a, a stake financially, let's say, in determining that this is the best drug that's ever been created or, you know, a miracle cure for whatever? Was it funded by the company that produces the miracle cure? Um, it's hard sometimes to discern that, but um, in this day and age, most of those conflicts really should be disclosed. Any journal worth its weight, you know, should be having authors complete some kind of disclosure or conflict of interest. So, um, again, that's something I do look for um, is, you know, is the person that is putting out this message conflicted in some way um, by what they're reporting? Great and for, for me, I, I guess I would say uh, when I'm listening to headlines on topics that I don't know that much about, one of the things I, I often think about is, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I suppose I, I don't get too uh, caught up in the results of just a single study. If they're, if they're reporting on a study, you know, again, it's interesting, it's worth noting, but, you know, give it some time and wait to see if it bears out. Now, if they're talking about uh, what we refer to as a meta-analysis, where they are taking the results of many studies and trying to combine them to, to see how all of the evidence adds up, um, you know, I give that some more weight. Now, those can go wrong too, but, but I, I certainly uh, give those more weight. And then I would also say, you know, if it, are we talking about a... Um, uh, you know, a consensus statement that's being endorsed by the Centers for Disease Control, or are we just talking about a single study in which a researcher is telling you about their findings? If it's, you know, it's getting endorsed by the CDC as a, as a, a big breakthrough, I think I'm going to be more interested. Or if it's, you know, the American College of Physicians or whatever the, the body is that would be able to digest the larger, bigger picture that's a great point. And, and actually, I, I forgot the major tool that I use that I would like to pass on to people. Sure. Do some research of your own. If you see a finding that you may or may not believe in this one newspaper article, go to Google. You know, figure out if other people have reported on this. See what are the other sources saying about this. You know, is this a one-time thing or is this consistent? Um, what are other media sources saying about this one study? That's another. Um, you know, maybe don't rely on one one media piece. Um, so, yeah, I always look beyond just the one thing I'm reading. Terrific. Okay, well, I think we can, we can leave it there. I want to thank both uh, Haley and Brian for, for joining me in what I found to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, before we go, if you are uh, an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership into to what we refer to as SCR gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Minneapolis. And you can learn about a lot of the, the new cutting edge research that's been going on in epidemiology there. Uh, it also gets you access to the SCR library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, some seminars and various different uh, activities that are available to SCR members for continuing your lifelong learning. You can find out more at, uh, at epiresearch.org. So no www, just, uh, just it's uh, epiresearch.org. Go there and you can find out about all of these things and how to become a member. Uh, we really appreciate all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back with another episode soon.